Good morning. Please turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 3, verse 19. Romans 3, verse 19. And as you're turning there, I want to give you an update about what's going to be coming from the pulpit in future weeks. Our next book study will be through the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians, but we're not going to begin that until the new year. And here's the reason why. As we were going through Isaiah together, I collected ideas for topical sermons and odd passages I wanted to preach on uh, once I got a chance. And now that we're in between books, uh, I have a chance. And uh, so, for instance, Psalm 103 is my favorite psalm of thanksgiving, and I've never preached on it. And a couple weeks from now, I want to preach a thanksgiving-themed uh, sermon on Psalm 103. Or in Malachi chapter 3, uh, there's a portion of Scripture I want to preach on and address to the subject of talking about what really matters, having everyday conversation, but about things that really count. Uh, in December, I want to do a five-part series on the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ and His first coming. And uh, so that's what's going to fill up the pulpit between now and the new year, and it'll be a little eclectic here in November, I confess, coming up in November, Uh, but that's what's coming, and then we'll jump into Ephesians in the new year. Now, the reason that I chose Romans chapter 3 for today is because I want to speak to you about the good news of guilt and justification. In the Bible, in, in both the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament, There are Hebrew and Greek words that we translate as justify or justification, and what they picture, they are legal terms that uh, have the courtroom in mind, and the idea is that God is the judge of the universe who will hold all people accountable, and we can be justified. Sinners can have their sins forgiven because the penalty for our sin has been paid for another. And both the the Hebrew and Greek words for justify, they mean at their root uh, to pronounce a favorable verdict in a court of law or to pronounce someone as righteous. So when I talk about the good news of guilt and justification, uh, by talking about justification, I'm necessarily speaking about salvation and the gospel this morning. And the reason I want to turn our attention to this doctrine of justification is that is because today is Reformation Sunday. So five hundred and five years ago, uh, tomorrow, Monday, uh, Martin Luther posted his ninety-five theses on the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, uh, primarily in protest of the Roman Catholic sale of indulgences. And uh, many uh, evangelical churches like to celebrate the last Sunday in October as Reformation Sunday, and I think that's a healthy thing to do. One of the marks of the Protestant Reformation was taking the Bible from the original uh, Hebrew and Greek and translating it into the common language of the people so that the people could not only understand the gospel for themselves but read God's Word for themselves. And so, I think it's a healthy thing that we participate in. And at its heart and soul, the uh, controversy of the Reformation was about where we can find the gospel and how to understand what the gospel is. For over 500 years, Protestant Christians have summed up the gospel in terms of the five solas. Uh, Sola is Latin for only or alone, and put together the five solas form a definition of the gospel that goes like this. The gospel, 
as revealed with final authority in Scripture alone, is the good news that by faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, sinners are granted forgiveness and the ability to enjoy God forever. Now, the theological justification for those five solas can be found all over the New Testament, but today I want to show you a section of Romans that speaks to them, at least in part, and then give an extended time of application where I'm uh, applying them to our contemporary situation. And I want to give credit where credit's due by acknowledging that both the inspiration and even the outline for this sermon I'm borrowing from Pastor Kevin DeYoung and his preaching on the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Follow along with me while I read Romans 3, verses 19 and following, and uh, I'll stop at certain sections as we read through it to try and highlight some of the solas for you. In Romans 3, starting in verse 19, we read, Now we know that whatever the law says, and Paul's speaking about the law of Moses, uh, we know that whatever the law of Moses says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by works of the law of Moses, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes knowledge of sin." But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And we would add also the apostles. And if you cross-reference to the book of Revelation, you see that anyone who adds to the prophets and apostles will be cursed. That's one of the reasons uh, taken with other verses that we say that the gospel is found in the Bible alone. Verse 23 for all, uh, excuse me, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a satisfaction in His blood through faith. That is the, of the, to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what law? Of works? No, by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If it's all faith and no works of the law, that's a salvation by faith alone. And if it's faith alone and we don't add any works to it, then it would have to be by the grace of God alone, through the work of Christ on the cross alone. Otherwise, if our works added to it, it wouldn't be by Christ alone. Uh, One of the things we need to say about the solas is one of the helpful things they do is they highlight this fact. In heaven, there are no bragging rights for those who are saved. Uh, The way it's set up eliminates all bragging rights. That's why there's no boasting, because it's all by God's grace. Uh, Verse 28, again, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. 
On the contrary, we establish the law. And I would add to Paul's words, we establish the law by talking about their proper use. The, the law has been given to us by God as a mirror to show us our moral reflection, and when we see that we fall short, it points us to our need for a Savior. But then after coming to the Savior, the law becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that guides us home on our heavenly journey. Well, I know that for many of you who are members of Grace Fellowship Church, if you're a long-standing member here, uh, the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone, through God's grace alone, on the basis of Christ's redeeming work alone, seems pretty clear. And if you've been a member here for a number of years, you've had to sit through a Reformation Sunday sermon every year from Chris Krupp. And so the question might be, well, do we really need another one, right? I mean, it's 2022, not 1522. The Roman Catholic Church has never been in the majority in, at any point in American history, and whatever uh, influence they have seems to be waning in the present generation. Uh, there are contemporary problems like issues surrounding gender and sexuality, uh, perhaps even the upcoming election on Tuesday, race relations. Why revisit the doctrine of biblical justification? And my answer is that if we would simply take a break from comparing the biblical doctrine of justification with the Roman Catholic Church and instead contrast it with the secular world around us, we would find that it is better than anything the secular world has to offer, and I believe we would see that it is as relevant as it ever has been. My answer is that if, if we would just look at it, we would see how beautiful it is in contrast to the present situation we find ourselves in in the moment. Though we live in a secular age, we, we need the biblical doctrine of justification as much as we ever have. And I have three reasons why uh, that you can see in your outline. Number one, we need the biblical doctrine of justification because the world is drowning in guilt because it's better news than anything the world has to offer, and because it keeps us from missing what life is really about. Let's look at the first point together. We need the biblical doctrine of justification because the world is drowning in guilt. According to the first three chapters of Romans, there are at least three things that all people cannot not know. I know that's awkward, but I'm going to put it that way, okay? There's at least three things people cannot not know. First of all, people cannot not know God exists. Uh, and here's where I'd like to set you at ease as your pastor. When you're trying to witness and share the gospel to other people, if you're talking to someone who's an atheist or an agnostic, please don't feel the burden to try and convince them through logical arguments that a transcendent Creator God exists. Romans 1 teaches that God has made His existence uh, uh, evident to all people in two ways. First, He has put a basic knowledge of His existence in all people's hearts. He's made it evident within them. And then objectively, He's made it evident to all people through what He's made in creation. All people know God exists. When I lived in California, I had the opportunity uh, once I was uh, witnessing to uh, a college student who was a young atheist, and uh, in a moment of honesty, he, he told me, well, you know, honestly, Chris, uh, I know God exists. Deep down, I know God exists. I just choose to ignore Him. And that was, I think, a very intellectually honest 
confession. I mean, sometimes uh, if you've been with atheists, sometimes their anger uh, betrays them when they talk about suffering in the world. If God doesn't exist, then, you know, suffering is just uh, part of the imp uh, impersonal forces of a universe that's bigger than us and can be a threat to us. Uh, but you get arguments from them. They, when, when they see suffering, they become like embittered hyper-Calvinists who believe that God is all-powerful and should have intervened to stop it. Uh, it shows that they know He exists, but they're choosing to ignore Him. The second thing people cannot not know is that something is wrong with the world. Now, this is an uncontested point amongst all the religions of the world and all the worldviews out there, all the secular worldviews like secular humanism, communism, postmodernism. This is an uncontested point. Everybody knows something's wrong with the world. Now, how we define what's wrong with the world, that might be a little different than each other, I admit, but everybody sees things are not the way they should be. And then third, people cannot not know that something is wrong within. In Romans 2, the Apostle Paul says the following, when Gentiles who do not have the law of Moses do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. People may be ignorant of the Ten Commandments. They may have never read the Bible before in their lives or been introduced to it, and yet they have the law of God, writ law of God written in their hearts, and they have a conscience that uses that law to accuse them when they break God's law. The result then in our day is a secular world drowning in guilt. In 2017, uh, a historian uh, at, o I believe at the time he was at Oklahoma University, uh, a historian, Wilford McClay, wrote an article that went viral among the secular elite, and the name of it was The Strange Persistence of Guilt. Here's his opening paragraph to his article. Those of us living in the developed countries of the West find ourselves in the tightening grip of a paradox, one whose shape and character have so far largely eluded our understanding. It is the strange persistence of guilt as a psychological force in modern life. If anything, the word persistence understates the matter. Guilt has not merely lingered, it has grown, even metastasized into something even more powerful and pervasive in the life of the contemporary West, even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse, and the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become even more elusive. Maclay then goes on to explain how secular prophets like Nietzsche and Freud prophesied that guilt would be eradicated. For instance, Nietzsche taught that the death of God, the death of the awareness or belief in God uh, in society in general, the death of an awareness of God would mean that human beings would no longer carry around a vestigial sense of uh, indebtedness to some oppressive higher being. Freud attempted to eradicate guilt by defining it only as a subjective uh, emotional pathology. And so, in essence, Freud taught that there is no God who's given a moral law that we're indebted to if we break it. No, uh, there's only guilt feelings. 
But now that we're well into the 21st century, we see that Nietzsche's aggressive secularism and Freud's therapeutic revolution have proven to be no match for what we all know to be true. Every one of us is afflicted by a haunting sense that we're not good enough. Though we try to run from it, we're aware that evil isn't just something that threatens us from without. At times, it wells up from within. We experience guilt feelings, yes, but we also have this nagging sense that behind those feelings, there's the objective fact that we have both failed to do the good we know we should have, and at times, done the wrong thing. In an effort to find relief, McClay argues that secularism offers this path to absolution. Quote, how can one account for the rise of the extraordinary prestige of victims as a category in the contemporary world? I believe the explanation can be traced back to the extraordinary weight of guilt in our time, the pervasive need to find innocence through moral absolution and somehow discharge one's moral burden, and the fact that the conventional means of finding that absolution are no longer generally available. Making a claim to the status of certified victim or identifying with victims offers itself as a substitute means by which the moral burden of sin can be shifted and one's innocence affirmed, end quote. Now, this is important. When it comes to the gospel accounts in the life of Jesus, one of the things you see, Jesus is constantly uh, in combat with the Pharisees and dealing with, and he's constantly confronting and addressing self-righteousness, people who are full of their own virtue and think they're morally superior. But that's not what we're up against today in the current culture here in America. It's not a race to the top to argue that I'm king of the hill of virtue. It's a race to the bottom. Secular ideologies like cultural Marxism sort people into ironclad categories of either oppressed or oppressor, and then they give those who are oppressed a path to pleading their own virtue, not on the basis of any good works they've done, but by pointing at how bad the wicked oppressors have been. Now, in Christianity, we actually have similar categories. We believe that people suffer and that people are sinners. But we would also add that we believe all people are in the obje- have the objective status of being in both categories at the same time. To greater or lesser degrees, each one of us in here is a suffering sinner and a sinning sufferer. Um, but the spirit of our age tries to neatly sort all people into either oppressed or oppressor and leaves everybody uh, to desperately scramble to try and find one way, some way that they can be in the category of oppressed. And even while this is all going on, the worldview then saddles people with a, a, a moral law that's even more burdensome and ponderous than anything in the law of Moses. Uh, to the imputed guilt all white people must walk around with from colonialism, imperialism, slavery, and participation in structural poverty, all people of every ethnicity are commanded not to contribute to water pollution, deforestation, uh, or be involved in capitalism or sexism or patriarchy or Islamophobia. According to Jesus, there's only one unpardonable sin, 
And if you like to compare and contrast worldviews, and you think, well, maybe secularism has a parallel uh, unpardonable sin, and, and you want to go searching for what would that unpardonable sin be that's sort of a parallel in the secular world that I could identify with? Well, if you think there's one, think again. There's dozens. Homophobia, transphobia, and leaving too large of a carbon footprint are just the beginning of a long list of unpardonable sins. We live in a secular age that has become puritanical in its morality. Now, let me pause there. I don't like saying the word puritanical because I'm actually a little bit of a fan of the English Puritans. You know, like John Bunyan. I like John Bunyan. I like John Owen. And so, in fact, even, even amongst evangelicals, there's this joke currently making the rounds that um, uh, the Puritan Christians was a group of Christians who had this uh, sneaking suspicion that somewhere uh, someone was having a good time. Uh, now, I think that that is a gross misrepresentation of who the Puritans were, uh, uh, but nevertheless, regardless of what your views on the Puritans are, I'll say this for the Puritans, they offered a clear path of redemption. They talked a lot about sin, yes, but they also talked a lot about the offer of a Savior. The same cannot be said for today's secular Puritans. They offer all law and no gospel. It's a curious thing. The secular prophets who would deny that humanity suffers from original sin and total depravity, they can turn around and make sweeping statements about humanity being uh, adrift in universal corruption and moral culpability. According to their law and practice, anytime you've uh, uttered any wrong word or associated with any wrong person or espoused any wrong view, it can be hung around your neck like a millstone worse than Hawthorne's scarlet letter. Secularism specializes in condemnation with no hope of pardon and accusations with no viable pathway to repentance and transformation. According to the secular religion, there is no justification possible for anybody ever found guilty of being in the category of oppressor. And absolution can only be found by achieving the recognized status of oppressed. And that absolution doesn't deal with any of the questions that are on the hearts of people who are actually oppressed, who have sensitive consciences. Uh, if, if you go, if you're one of the ones who's in the category of oppressed, and you struggle with guilt feelings because you have a sensitive conscience, the answers you're given are like going to a doctor. It's like having cancer, going to a doctor, and the doctor pronounces you healthy because your cancer isn't as bad as those other people's cancer. It never deals with my questions about what's behind the guilt feelings I have. Right now, the world is offering unsatisfying answers to the problem of our guilt. We need the biblical doctrine of justification because despite our protest to the contrary, every one of us knows deep down that God exists, that His law is good, that we've broken it, and that our guilt feelings that haunt us actually show us there's an objective guilt we all carry. We need the biblical doctrine of justification because all of us are drowning in guilt. But my second major point, we need the biblical doctrine of justification because it's better than anything the world has to offer. Now, if you've been listening, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, Chris, you already, 
you already covered that. You already, you already let us know what you think about those puritanical uh, secular people, right? Uh, but what I'd like to do now is contrast the inferior justification that secularism offers with what Christ offers. And I have three sub-points. I think there's at least three ways the biblical doctrine of justification is better than what the world offers. First sub-point, the biblical doctrine of justification is personal. It's personal. The vertical orientation of my rebellion against the God who made me and loves me and has a right to be angry at my treason, that might sound offensive to secular ears, but it's good news because it has the advantage of actually pointing me to the person I need to go to to make things right. Secular salvation from guilt comes, as far as I can tell, in only one of two ways. I either buy into the psychologized definition of guilt as nothing more than a feeling, or I look to the impersonal cosmos uh, to pronounce me absolved. Uh, redefining guilt as a feeling, along with Freud, I think it can work for a short time, but in the long run, it's no match for my conscience that comes fully armed with the law of God written on my heart. And as for the impersonal cosmos, how will it communicate to me that I've done enough? If I beat my styrofoam containers into plowshares and my SUVs into pruning hooks, will the cosmos tell me when I've done enough? Will it reassure me that I've been definitively absolved? A God who is profoundly angry at rebellion sounds like really bad news, but it's actually good news because it means I know who to go to in order to find the forgiveness that I know deep down I actually need. The second sub-point here on why the biblical doctrine of justification is better than anything the world has to offer is not just because it's personal, but also because it's merciful. Uh, the Scriptures teach that we're saved by faith alone, apart from our works. Earlier I read Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Um, God has been merciful to us by ordaining that we receive salvation through faith because our works were never going to get us there. Now, when it comes to this faith that justifies us, our Protestant forefathers were very careful to define how that faith operates in salvation. They defined faith not as the judicial ground of our justification, but as the instrumental cause of our justification. The judicial ground of our justification was Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. If, if Christ didn't die on the cross, we could have all the faith in the world and it wouldn't do any good. He's the one who… He's the grounds, the foundation for how we can be forgiven. But the instrument by which we receive His work on the cross is faith. And what that means is that the surpassing value of Christ and His death for us is what saves us, not the quality of our faith. Maybe I could illustrate it this way. Uh, I spent my early, uh, I spent my elementary years in Spokane, Washington. That's in eastern Washington, and it's, it's colder there in the winter than it is in Seattle, and we always got snow and ice, and uh, we would sometimes play hockey out in the street, or it, there was this pond, and if the pond froze over, we could play 
hockey on the pond. And if you've ever lived up north and played hockey, you know how that works, right? You're a 10-year-old boy and you're dumb, so you go out and, and you don't tell your parents what you're doing because they probably wouldn't allow it. And, you know, you, you hit the ice with your stick to see if it cracks. Maybe you throw a big rock out on it. And then finally, you ask the smallest boy in the group to go out on it, you know. And, and then eventually, but if you're eventually able to get out on the ice and play some hockey, what is it that keeps you up? What is it that keeps you from uh, crashing through the ice into the water below? Is it your confidence in the ice? No. You can, you can skate around on that ice with reckless abandon, confident that it will hold you and totally focused on playing the game. Or you can skate around the outside and never go to the middle because you're afraid of what will happen and just sort of uh, tentatively be skating around just waiting for it to break at any minute. But what holds you up is not your confidence in the ice. What holds you up is that if the ice is a, th- uh, um, a foot thick, you'll be fine, right? Well, it's the same with Christ. One person may have great faith and take great risks for Christ, and another person may have faith the size of a mustard seed and have moments in the Christian life where they struggle with doubts, have moments where they do act sort of like the disciples. They act like a person of little faith, but what saves them is not the quality of their faith. It's Uh, the object of their faith, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. We're saved by faith apart from the works of the law, and I think that's actually more of a mercy than we sometimes realize. And then third sub-point, the biblical doctrine of justification is better than anything the world has to offer because it's legal. In the Bible, justification is used as a legal forensic term. As I said before, in both Hebrew and Greek, uh, the words that we translate justify mean to pronounce a favorable verdict in a court of law or uh, to pronounce someone righteous. Uh, The language is the language of the courtroom with God as judge. And the idea of justification is that guilty sinners though we are, We can be declared righteous by God because the penalty for our rebellion has been paid for another. Jesus lived the righteous life we should have. He died the death we deserve, and we can be pardoned and therefore justified. We're justified not because God dropped the charges, but because someone already paid the price for us. Now, intimately connected to our justification is the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. What happened at the cross of Christ was penal in the sense that we've rebelled against God and we incur a penalty, hence the word penal, we uh, incur a penalty that's more than we can bear. What happened at the cross of Christ was also substitutionary in the sense that Christ willingly, voluntarily became a substitute, taking our penalty in our place. And then what happened at the cross produced an atonement in the sense that it reconciles us to God and makes us at one with Him again. That English word atonement, it's a compound word. At one meant, uh, and we scrunch it together and pronounce it atonement, but it means to reconcile people to God. Now, Progressive Christians will claim that this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement amounts to legal fiction, that it's actually unjust for God to punish a third party for the sins of another. 
but that misses the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. He dwelled with the Father from eternity past. He's truly God and truly man all at the same time. What that means is that at the cross, God was paying the penalty Himself in the person of His Son. He didn't punish a third party. The judge pronounced us guilty, but then He paid the penalty Himself. The doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement also has the advantage of explaining how it is that God can be just and and justify a bunch of wicked, evil sinners. Uh, In Exodus 34, we find the great riddle of the Old Testament. Uh, If you remember in that chapter, Moses asked God to show him his glory. And uh, God does, and this is what happens in Exodus 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving and kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, I don't know if you heard it at the end, But there's a riddle there, and there's a huge theological problem. If God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, then by definition, the guilty are going to go unpunished. But if He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, then it would appear that no one can be forgiven. Which one is it? It's a big problem. It's the great riddle of the Old Testament. How can a just God justify a bunch of rebellious, wicked sinners? That is, beloved, the dilemma of Scripture, the big problem in the Bible that the Bible addresses isn't how a good God could allow suffering, even though I do think the Bible answers that question. The big problem that the Bible addresses isn't how a loving God could ever judge anybody or send them to hell. Now, I do think the Bible answers that question, but that doesn't seem to be the big rub with the prophets and the apostles. The big problem in the Bible is how on earth God can be just and yet forgive sinners. And the answer to that riddle is prophesied for us in Isaiah 53 and then fulfilled on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 3.26 when he says, God demonstrates His righteousness in the plan of salvation by both punishing sin and pardoning repentant sinners. This is why Paul says uh, in the passage I read this morning that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Our justification is a legal, forensic justification in the highest court of the cosmos, God's court. In contrast, secularism has no objective legal justification possible because they deny that we're objectively guilty. Their best attempt is to encourage you to pretend that your guilt isn't there. Uh, it's just a feeling. Or, or maybe one variation on their scheme is to say, you can admit that what you did is wrong, but it's not your fault. It's your parents' fault. It's the culture's fault. It's your genetics. That, that's what's to blame. The secular worldview steadfastly avoids any notion that our sin is legal and that our guilt is objective, and therefore it can offer no answer for how we can be legally and objectively acquitted of the true guilt that we all suspect is behind our guilt feelings. But the biblical doctrine of justification is both legal and objective. How did the Apostle John say it, 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, 
God is faithful and loving, faithful and gracious. Nah, you, got, you guys are ahead of me. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God the justification He offers through His Son is better than anything the world has to offer because it's legal and it's objective. And then finally, third main point, we need the biblical doctrine of justification because it keeps us from missing what life is all about. The world you inhabit is not a random world where history repeats itself cyclically. No, no, no. It's a linear world with a beginning and a middle and an end. We live and move and have our being in the greatest story ever told, the story of God's redeeming love. It's a story of how a holy God can forgive unholy people, transform them, and then live among them. But you know this. The world wants to evangelize you and catechize you into a different story, a story where there is no God we're accountable to and where we can live however we want, a story where a united humanity saves itself from the problems we face as we define those problems. Uh, it's a story where we can bring in a utopia in our own strength and in our own wisdom if we could just find a way to cooperate and work together. It's a tempting story where each one of us can express our true selves and break free from the constraints of family and culture and gender and even simple human finitude. And the biblical doctrine of justification keeps us from being catechized into that and missing the plot of the real story we live in. Despite the prophecies of Nietzsche and Freud, and even the current ascendancy of the secular worldview in our culture, we still have all the vestiges of inhabiting a moral universe. But secularism offers no answer for our guilt other than the dead end of therapeutic self-talk, uh, and it offers no effective atonement with no coherent plan of redemption. Despite secularism's protest to the contrary, the biggest problem humanity faces is that we have offended a holy God and we will face a day of accountability before Him. The need of the hour is justification. Uh, the biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, is not just our only hope and our only true answer to our problem. It's a better answer than anything else that Roman Catholicism historically or secular humanism currently or any other worldview has come up with. As a church family, we agree with the Apostle Paul. It's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save objectively guilty sinners, amongst whom we would confess we're foremost. We believe there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and that sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their legally guilty stains. We've staked the eternal destiny of our souls on this truth. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not justly, equitably, appropriately perish for their sins, but have eternal life. The year is 2022, and the spirit of the age is secular, not Roman Catholic. But we still need the biblical doctrine of justification just as much as we needed it back in 1522. May God give us the grace to continue to reform and purify His church 
and make us salt and light to a dying and guilty world. Let's pray.